This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. It's Friday. It is 6.10 p.m. And it is time for us to do what we like to do every Friday here. And that is bring someone in for what we call the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. It sets a very high bar. But the person we have in today, I know, is fully capable of doing a gorgeous Fosbury flop over that high bar. Brad Clark, principal of Maple Leaf Strategies, former city councillor in Hamilton, former MPP, former many other things too, I suspect, but uh, thank you for coming in. Glad to have you. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I want to see me do that. The Fosbury flop? That was going to be a quiz question this week. I was going to ask, in what sport would you do the Fosbury flop? And then I thought, I don't know how many people would know that. My butt never goes over that line. (laughs) You and I both. Yeah, we can. My head and shoulders can get up high enough. no problem getting my head over. It's the saggy butt that drops down. got it. I've never understood actually how someone who is like six foot four could high jump eight feet. That doesn't make any physics, sense of physics or biology. I remember doing it in high school and I swore I got over it, but... Clearly, the left cheek just grabbed that bar and pulled it down. <laughs> now, I've never thought that I would be commenting on your cheeks, but if your cheek is grabbing a bar, man, you have well, talented cheeks. there's no other cheeks. way that bar came down. <laughs> I actually have right here. You can see it right there. I have a scar on the back of my head because in high school, I went to high jump and hit a loose patch of gravel. It was outdoor oh, no. pit. And right when I planted my foot, the foot went woof, and yep. I went, and I was leaning back already, and I landed right on my head and busted myself open Ugh. like a baked potato. That was, um, and you want to know what I did at the hospital? I'm still ashamed of this. <laughs> <laughs> we had to wait in the emergency room at the hospital for some period of time because there was a long wait. And the person who had driven me there, I was in, I think, grade 12. The person who drove me said, I, I got to go home. I can't wait here forever. And I said, okay. It's just a head injury. They'll get to so me. I had, had I was wearing my white school shirt and I had a gauze thing up to my hand and there was blood rolling down my arm and it was all in my shirt now, and I said, "Okay, you got to go." Okay, so I pretended to pass out. Boom into the emergency, <laughs> like you would not believe the care I got after that. It was amazing. Now, of course, I had to go through about four hundred extra tests. <laughs> yeah, you were there for I, the night. I hadn't thought that part through, but boy, did I ever get in for uh, for treatment quickly when I did that. It was. Um, have you ever been? I mean, you you must have spent. You must have not spent time in, but you must have been to the hospital for far too before. much time spent in the emergency room. Have you? Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Three all, children, three grandchildren. But for yourself? I mean, the children, yeah. You, uh, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday. Shockingly, my son, who was very athletic and involved in everything, was almost never in the hospital for sports. Meanwhile, I was in for everything. I remember my daughter, she was on the teeter-totter, and someone got off the other end. She Uh-oh. went down, crashed on her ankle. Oh. They came running down to get me, so I go down, pick her up to carry her home, and I bang her into a tree on the <laughs> ankle. <laughs> <laughs> and she starts laughing, and then I turn around and I bang her head on a pole. <laughs> and I said, okay, you can walk. If you're laughing that hard, <laughs> then you can walk. That was the year you didn't win the Father of the Year yeah, no, commendation. No, it, was, it was downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> that, makes me, that makes me think very much of that old um, that clip from uh, the NHL. Mike Medano, I think, got concussed. He got knocked out. And they took him on a stretcher, and the, of course the camera is showing him being led to the ambulance on the stretcher, and they went and they dropped the stretcher over and dropped him on his stomach. And meanwhile, he's strapped to the board and can't do anything. Um, yes, I, I uh, boy, I, I almost had. So a, we started off at a high bar here. High bar diminished. But I, I almost had a wing of Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto named after me. I was there so often. Oh wow! I was there so often. I told I was saying to people on the air the other day we were talking about it that um, started very early, six months. 
Six months old, I was jumping so vigorously in my jolly jumper that I pulled the whole thing out of the ceiling and had to get stitches in my finger. And then a few years later, it was getting toes cut off in a lawnmower and it went from You're there. You're a maniac. I mean, it was my, my parents loved me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they really did, but they could have dealt with a little less enthusiasm <laughs> that constantly had them driving me to the hospital. Uh, I want to get into... Um, well, I'm trying to think of what would be a good way to make this segue, and I just honestly can't think of a good way to just make this segue. In. So, two feet. Let's everyone just take a half a second pause here, like to clean our palate. Okay. New topic, much more serious. Um, and we're going to pick up with this after a break in just a couple of minutes. But, th- I mean, the, the discussion all week this week has obviously been about what happened last weekend. Did City Council, beyond all the other stuff that was going on, did City Council handle this properly. You've been on council. It's something like this. Now you never had something like this to deal with exactly. So there's no template for how you deal with something like this. But when you saw city council's reaction, the motion they passed, whatever, did they do the job they should have done on this? It was interesting that it became such an issue that everyone had to speak to it. Uh, given that in the last two years, as I understand it, there have been numerous instances very similar to this across the city, specifically along Barton Street. Yeah, not with a gang of people dressed in black. That's, that was the difference. That, but the, the, there, there were still these gangs of people going out and vandalizing, and uh, there's been some serious problems with it. And so they, they really haven't got a handle on it. It was a motherhood statement. We condemn this type of violence. I, we, all, we all get that. Uh, the larger question is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to stop them from doing it again? And that hasn't been answered. That, I mean, and I, is there something? I mean, can, is, is, is city council in a position to do something about that? Or do they simply have to turn to the police chief and well, say, what police, are you going to do about it? The police deal with the crime, but the underlying problems that these folks are talking about... Um, I, I think Matthew Green took it on the chin a couple of times from different people this week because he, he suggested that they talk to this group. And I happen to agree with him. Do we, you? They, they should be talking to the leaders of this group privately. Okay, we're going to pick that up because I find that fascinating that you would say that. I found that fascinating when Matthew said that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. You surprised me a little bit um, because you said that you would engage in conversation with the, if you could figure out who these people are who are behind Lock Street, uh, that you would potentially sit down and talk with them to hear their grievances. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's important that um, they look beyond the violence that occurred and and, uh, have some private discussions away from the media at City Hall or some neutral place. Uh, with the leaders of this group, if there are leaders of the group, that's one of the challenges. Is well, that anarchists by don't, definition don't, they don't have don't a leader. They don't accept a hierarchy. Um, but there are people who are connected to that group, and, and you could learn very quickly what exactly the challenges are, and, and are they doing it just because they are the anarchists and they want to, to strike out, or are they really, truly frustrated because they don't believe that they're being heard? So, okay, so what, what, what are they saying? We don't know. What, we don't know exactly other than um, g- anti-gentrification. 
Okay, so two problems with that from my perspective. Uh, one of them is, it, does that not then send a message to everybody else that if you want to be heard by City Hall, if you want Mayor Fred or someone else to sit down with you, throw a few bricks through a window and have a violent demonstration, no. and we will then, you've caught our attention. No, you, because it doesn't change what the police is doing. The police will investigate, the police will lay charges, the police will, will, will proceed with their track on enforcement. I'm talking separate from that. Do we not want to reach out to people of that ilk in this community who are having these challenges and ask them exactly, well, why aren't you engaging? Engaging doesn't mean throwing a brick through a window. Engaging means sitting down across a round table and having a discussion. Why aren't they engaging with the decision makers? And the answer to that, I think, lies right in the philosophy. We had a a professor on who was a self-described radical anarchist from Quebec earlier this week explaining it. And he says, we don't believe in the hierarchy. We don't believe in the governing system. And so if you're saying the answer is right there, they... If they are going to follow their philosophy as outlined, they could never engage. There's just such a chasm between where they are. So if you sit down with them, maybe they tell you that. But the second part of it is, so let's say they do sit down with the mayor or counselors or whatever, and they say, we dislike gentrification. We dislike people. We dislike capitalism. We dislike this. We dislike that. What are you going to do about it? Like there's, it, it seems that the position that the anti-gentrification anarchist movement has, if you read anything about it, is so contradictory to what we have as a system that there wouldn't be a lot of middle ground to deal with them. Would there be? Uh, yeah, there, there may not be. We don't know because no one's trying. Well, no one's trying. It, it also would help if they would identify themselves. You can't talk to someone who won't step forward. Now, I understand it's, they it's probably... It's interesting because when you talk to people in the community, very quickly you get names uh, coming up uh, in terms of who these these leaders are or, or at least allies are. Um, I mean, it took me less than an hour on Facebook to start pulling out names of individuals who may be involved. So then why aren't they reaching out to those people? At least trying to understand what the anarchist group... Uh, the ungovernables, I think they call mm-hmm. themselves, um, are really trying to do. Uh, is, is, are they just trying to cause trouble? And if that's the case, fine, let the police deal with it. But if there are other issues that they're trying to, to deal with and they just don't know how to deal with it, then let's find out. But without having that conversation, we lose. Yeah, my, my concern always with this kind of thing, and I don't want to... Uh, nobody died, and we're thankful for that. Nobody was hurt. We're very thankful for that, as far as I know. It was property damage that happened. So I'm a little hesitant when people start throwing around the word terrorist. I get where they're coming from. I understand what they mean by that. That to me is, it's on the border of, of uncomfortable and not. Nonetheless, it seems to me that's the same kind of thing. We wouldn't negotiate with terrorists. And maybe you're not talking about negotiating. I don't know if you're talking about negotiating or just having a discussion. I'm trying to find out what the hell they want. I'm trying to understand exactly what their position is. And there may not be a united position. There may be a plethora of positions, given that it's a, a non-hierarchical group. Um, but I, I wouldn't classify them as terrorists. Terrorists, immediately, to my mind, there are casualties involved. And so it's yeah, not... Yeah, and I, I agree with that. This is that that's a word that I, I struggled with with this one. Yeah. People have thrown it out there. And, I mean, would it change? Would, it, would they suddenly be a terrorist if a brick that had gone through a window had hit a person? 
probably, but that's now you're. It's the end that changes the definition. I understand, yeah, but it's, to your it's, point, it's continue. still not the same as terrorism. I mean, Black, Black Lives Matter has protested and held up parades and have protested outside of the premier's um, uh, home and other cabinet ministers' homes. Um, and eventually what happened was that the premiers ended up sitting down with them to find out what exactly are you wanting to tell us because you're, protesting doesn't tell us anything. Protesting tells us you're mad. Walking down the street, all covered in black, throwing, you're mad. We get that. You're angry. But what is exactly that you want Hamilton City Council to do differently? And if you can't put that into words, then you really have a challenge on your hands. You're just simply that group that's going to constantly uh, berate people and threaten people and throw bricks. Well, then the police will deal with you. But if there's something else that you're trying to get across, then let's have a conversation and find out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. City Council response and other things to what happened on Lock Street. Um, What do you think about the City Council response? You said it was a motherhood statement, which is... Well, what I mean, and I don't mean to be disparaging to any of the councillors, it's a motherhood statement. Who would state publicly that they agree with the violence. No one's going to, to, so they condemn the violence in the most vociferous terms and they speak about it. Um, Which kind of is one of those things that you, you have to put on your checklist so down the road, nobody can say you didn't even speak out against it. It's, well, it's one and, of those and things. And it's you, a part of silly season also. I mean, let's not, I mean, you, they know they're going to have um, some wide-eyed candidates wanting to be the councillor and they're going to use anything they can to try and score a point against So if you so, hadn't spoken so out against hadn't it, spoken, then you're it in favour. You're in favour of it. And so they play that game. And, and let's face it, these 15, 16 elected officials are pretty smart when it comes to politics. And so the, the, the very least they could have done was to condemn it uh, with Donna Skelly's motion. But I... I, I I listened very carefully to the, the, the um, it was on this program, um, Krista Boyer, Boyer and Bill Real Kern. estate agent. Yes, yep. real estate. And, and, and they were the ones that were involved two years ago where they were brought in investors to Hamilton and the bus was surrounded and we all heard the story about that. But the, on this program, on, on this TV, uh, radio station, they actually stated that it's been two years of this, numerous incidents. While the police can't even agree with the community in terms of what was an incident, but if it's been going on for two years, then why hasn't the city council or why hasn't the police department uh, done more than just investigate when it happens? What about a task force? What about bringing in bylaw enforcement police and, and start understanding exactly what has been going on so that they can actually make plans to, to stop it? I had Councillor Sam Marula on here last night and that was met. I got a bunch of responses to that. Some agreeing with what he said, some disagreeing with what he said. His position basically is this has been, as you say, going on for some time on Kenilworth, on Ottawa, on Barton, but because it's not on Lock Street, because it's not where the social media savvy folks hang out and where the movers and shakers buy their coffee and shop, that nobody cares. Do you agree with that to some degree, to any degree, to a complete degree that it's, it's the location in town that drives the fact that this really has registered as opposed to the action itself? Uh, most definitely the location uh, registered this in the public's mind. Uh, Lock Street is a very popular area uh, and it has been redeveloped and I mean, there's lots of businesses there. Uh, 
but at the same time, they've been doing this along Barton Street, and, and, and Councillor Marulo's correct. It really hasn't caught anyone's attention at City Hall or the police. If you speak with Bill Curran and you speak with, with Krista, they, they really haven't had an overwhelming response of, well, oh, here's how we're going to help you. It's just, just keep, keep us informed. So what, uh, what could, you, you've been around the table, you know what goes on, what could City Council, if they wanted to, what could they actually do? What steps could they actually take that would not be just for show, that would not just be as part of, as you describe it, silly season for re-election season, if they truly wanted to do something that was impactful? And we don't know, that the, we don't know what the results would be yet, but what could they, what do they have in their arsenal that they potentially could do that would maybe have an effect across the city? Well, they could start with gathering some information. What has happened in the last two years? Bring a staff report for it. Have their staff look at it. What are the things that they could do to stop the graffiti, to stop the vandalism? Uh, more lights along Barton Street. Can, what, what steps could they take? Uh, cameras. Um, but in order to do that, you have to focus on the issue. And so there has to be some, in my mind, some type of task force where the staff have been told and the police have been told, okay, you got to look at this because this is, is getting out of hand now. What exactly can we do to track these people down and stop it from happening again? What is it that we can do to protect these businesses? What is it that we can do to protect these homes? Because homes had windows broken too. Um, and, and I think that would be a step in the right direction. Well, I, I can remember probably 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly how long it was, there were a string of, up in Ancaster, a string of garage doors and houses that were tagged Mm -hmm. with swastikas. And it got people's attention largely because of the image, because of the image. If it had been someone, just a graffiti artist, just tagging the doors with their own signature, probably nobody cares about it. The swastika obviously is going to, as it should, Mm -hmm. get attention, but I don't remember a response like this. Now, maybe that's just a sign that the city has changed in a bit. Maybe we are more hashtag ham aunt. Maybe we're now feeling more community driven than we were 15 years ago. Maybe if someone went around painting swastikas on garage doors in residential areas today, we would rise up more as a community like we've seen with Lock Street. Well, swastikas are seen more of, as a hate crime, so the police immediately respond to Something that. They else. deal with it a little bit different Something than else. anarchists. Let's, let's say somebody went up to the Meadowlands area or to somewhere else in town, to the Stony Creek, wherever, and started throwing bricks through windows. M- maybe this has now changed it. Maybe yeah. we feel different about our city or maybe it's just Lock Street. Here's my concern. There were one-offs initially two years ago. The one-offs have become a pattern. Now it's up their, they've upped their ante to 30 people walking down the street in black Bella Calavas and, and uh, hiding themselves and doing what they did, and then they disappear at the end. So it was very coordinated, and it was an attack. What are they going to do next? Well, and they, if we don't know what they're going to do next, then we think they're ramping up further, then we better have some pe- someone at City Hall and on the police department investigating to come up with some decisions in terms of how you deal with it. I'll say the one thing about this, then we're going to move along, because um, the one thing that struck me about this whole thing, they were obviously very confident. They were very bold, and they were obviously very confident that nothing was going to happen, because normally you would think if 30 people are dressed like that, walking down the street, someone is going to wonder about something. They were, they obviously they were, were very confident, yeah, but they, they were confident nothing was going to happen. I think that's the sense I got from it. Not that it wouldn't eventually, not the police wouldn't show up eventually, 
But anyway, now, totally unrelated. You said balaclava. Mm-hmm. In my first newspaper job, I had to write a police story about someone who did a burglary wearing a balaclava, but I made a typo and the st- <laughs> story went into the paper the next day that they robbed the store wearing a baklava on their head. <laughs> baklava. Which, le- well, baklava <laughs> which led me to get some letters asking, why did they have a honey-covered Greek pastry on their head while they were robbing the store? Never confuse the two again, I'll tell you that much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. There is, Brad, a TV show that's going to be on this Sunday night that has been in storage in mothballs for the last 12 years. Back then, O.J. Simpson did an interview where he sat down and it was for a book, but they recorded this interview. And in it, he explained how, well, I didn't do it, but if I had done it, hypothetically, here's how I might have done it. And apparently, now I have not seen this clip yet. I haven't seen this show yet. But some reporters who were given a, a screener of it point out that if you watch it closely as he's doing it, he begins the interview talking in the third person as if someone was doing it, but slowly morphs into just saying I and talking about himself doing these things. And it is spooky and it's gross and it's discomforting. And anyone who watches this is going to just be reassured or reaffirmed that, you know, he got away with murder. But my question is, why are we still so fascinated with OJ Simpson? Because this is going to be, this is going to be huge. They're going to get huge ratings for this. You just mention his name and you will get huge conversation. Why are we fascinated by this guy still? He was a sports icon. Yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, he was the epitome of success. And he was Norbert. Yeah. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, he's, he, I don't understand why there's a fascination with any of those those crimes in the U.S. Um, perhaps it's just titillating for people, you know. Uh, but I look at um, my wife watches his ID uh, channel, which is all crime. It's all about the different um, uh, criminal actions that are, have occurred in the United States. Some really hor- horrible murders, and they have huge ratings because people seem to love that. But I, I, I don't understand. I, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you'd think they would have just simply dropped it by now, but someone's making money on it, and that's why they're doing it. Now, by the way, Norberg, not Norbert. Norbert mm-hmm. is that, uh, anyway, just for anyone who wants to call. We get calls about, th- this is the kind of stuff we'll get a call about. Oh, it's not Norbert, it's Norberg. But anyway, no, I'm with you. I, 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 I look at this story, and I think we have, we must have exhausted every single minuscule molecule of the O.J. Simpson story. We've had ESPN did a massive documentary about it. We had a trial every day on TV for eight months. We had an eight-part miniseries that was just on TV. And yet everybody continues to... There's nothing you could possibly learn about this now. And yet we still gobble it up. I I think people would love to just have him say, okay, folks, I did it. And so they're tuning in for that great moment. Whether or not he ever actually says it or not remains to be seen. And the, the, the interesting part about the U.S. justice system is even if he said today, I did it. Big deal. Nothing, he can, nothing they can do about it. Nope. There's nothing you can do. He could, he could literally put together a one-man stage show where he stands up there and says, yeah, I did and it. And I'd say only in America. Well, See? 
And, but you know what? People would buy tickets sure for they that. Would. Sure they would. And that's the part about this that baffles me is that we, I'm, it's not the same. I understand it's not the same. I was trying to think of the biggest, this is, this would clearly be in modern times since Charles Manson, this would be the biggest, I think, U.S. Well, story. Well, back to the 50s with the torso murders. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying in the States, in, in our lifetime and probably ever, this was the biggest crime story as far as catching the public's imagination. One of them, and, for sure. And I was trying to think, okay, what would be the equivalent up here? Well, it's it's a poor example, and I grant you that, because it's a different circumstance. But I think probably in modern times, the Bernardo story would be probably the one that would be as far as just public engagement and public fascination and and everything else. If Paul Bernardo somehow got out of jail and went on to a golf course, I cannot for the life of me fathom that any person is going to walk up and throw their arm around him and go, hey, Paul, let me take a selfie. There would be universal spite and disdain and rage and fury and anger. O.J. Simpson walks around and he is, he's O.J., you don't even call him Simpson. He's OJ. And I just, I can't understand when everybody knows that he did it, that that he, that he this is the way it is. And, and, and there's no, doesn't seem to be any anger except from the family of the victims. It's just, it's, it's kind of a cult pop culture story thing now. It has become that most certainly. It, it just... I don't understand it. If Paul Bernardo got out and staged a, a put on a, a show, a one-man show, nobody would even remotely think of buying it. Remember what happened when Carla Homolka was working at her children's school and the outrage about that. But Paul Bernardo was found guilty. I No, I understand that, but everybody in the public before that even happened knew he was guilty. Oh, and the public was split down the middle in the U.S. over whether or not he did it or he didn't do it. And it, it really fell along um, African-American or, or white lines. Agreed. But if you look at the people who are taking selfies with O.J. Simpson now, many of them are Caucasian. Many of them are white. So it's not that you're you're correct that there was that division that because mm-hmm. it was after the Rodney King right. and everything else. You got it. But nonetheless, it's not like white people, not that we want to continue with race divisions, but it's not like white people continue to hold him in spite and black people continue to say he's innocent. It's the flip side. Well, I'm just now. saying no one, America is not unanimous that he's guilty still to this day. Maybe after Sunday. Maybe if he says he did it. Well, again, he doesn't, it's an old interview and at no point apparently does he say he did it. He just does everything. It, it, would, it has to be an incredibly creepy interview. That's what everyone is saying, because he starts talking as a third person, as if this is a hypothetical imaginary thing. And then suddenly it's, and then I did this and then I did, oh, wait, I mean, then they would have done this. It's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Interesting to see whether or not he got paid for it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure We have different rules up here. (laughs) Yeah, but the money was supposed to all go to their families, but I don't know what happens with it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. But the thing that happens this weekend that is just so annoying is we lose an hour of sleep. (laughs) Daylight savings time. (laughs) We lose an hour of sleep. This has been talked about now, Brad, for uh, a long time. Is there any real, that once upon a time I understand it was for like the farmers or something to extend the the daylight and to maybe save some electricity, whatever. Is there any real benefit to us screwing up our lives with this? Everyone seems to hate it. Why do we keep doing it? 
I don't know why we keep doing it. Um, it it's. I thought originally that they did it because it just, you know, it saves money on electricity and it keeps you open if you're in a business, you, you know. Um, I I honestly don't. I enjoy seeing the kids play soccer and football and baseball later at night with the sun still up, which is helpful. But I'm okay with leaving the time as it is for the summer. So we have those later nights in the summer and it gets, I mean, it's going to be dark in the winter anyway. Who, you know, who, who cares? Who cares? I, I've honestly, I, I've tried. I've been trying to find some explanation for in modern times, and the only one I can really find that makes any sense is for the electrical thing—that it'll allow us to keep our lights off. But the hour really? of sleep that we lose, I gain at least three the next day. <laughs> so it's not a big deal for me. <laughs> it seems to me, though, that it's—it's it's true. I collapse. Put something the, over my eyes, and I'm asleep. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It just seems one of these things that we have in our society, not just our side, wherever, that we have these, some traditions or whatever, and we say, well, we've always done it. I don't know if I want to change it. I, I mean, I don't even know who's driving. Who drives this? Who Who are the people? Is there a daylight saving time subcommittee? With There's a guru somewhere? Yeah, I, I don't know. Some, some like the, the smoking man from the X-Files who... Tells all the governments <laughs> that they have to do daylight. Like I, I, it's a daylight savings time conspiracy. Well, the, I, who, who is the person or people or group that wants daylight saving time? That's what I don't get. I don't think they've ever really asked anyone. Well, they just have it. Yeah, but and so why? I mean, this is and and I know I'm putting you on the spot because you're not Mister Daylight Savings Time. I don't. I when you came in here, I didn't know if you were pro or con daylight or if you were just neutral. I, I didn't, didn't know there was camps. <laughs> Yeah, daylight saving agnosticism. <laughs> That's right. But let's have a protest over daylight savings time. <laughs> Call out the anarchists for a protest. We're black, but like Alva, I was. <laughs> uh, it, it's at some point. These are the kind of things to me that we. Sh- I don't think we need to be so cynical in our society that we question every single little thing. But there are things when I think. When people are looking at this going, why are we doing it? I think it's a fair question to say. I don't say. know how it helps the farmers because I, I, I've seen farmers out in, in in the fall in the fields with big lights and they're still working. They they don't, they just keep, they do what they got to do. Well, and farming, let's be honest, farming today is slightly different than it was in 1950. That's right. Or 1930. You don't need to strap your plow behind the herd of the head of oxen to pull the, and they don't need light as you say, you've got tractors now, and you've got m- tractors with GPS. Yeah, and you've got air machinery, conditioning, <laughs> irrigation stuff, and everything. You don't need to have daylight to to do no. these things. And if farming is the number one driver of daylight savings time, that seems a little ridiculous. So if it comes just down to electricity, well, so why do you hate it so much? I'll tell you why. <laughs> Two reasons. One, because I lose my hour of sleep (laughs) and I desperately need that hour of sleep. Uh, Two, because I hate changing all the clocks in the house (laughs) because then they, they never actually end up as the exact same time because by the time you've moved through the house, they never get set. So they're all different. Uh, It used to be that I hated setting my VCR. So it just flashed 12 all the time. (laughs) Don't have that problem anymore. So you're technologically challenged. I, I, it, to me, it just, it just seems stupid. That's the point. It just seems stupid that we- There we go. We got it. That it's we stupid. Have, well, that for no good reason, we all have to- Maybe the only reason we still have it is because the fire departments like it. 
And we're Canadians. We just don't complain. Well, but the fire departments like it because it's their chance and, and it's a good thing to tell us to ch- check the batteries in our, in our smoke alarms. So maybe, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that alone makes it worthwhile. Uh, surely there could be something else we could use to remind us to check our batteries. <laughs> we don't have to start fiddling with the clocks. And Radley's grumpy today. No, no, but, <laughs> and have you, have you ever had to, have you ever had to go? No, it's always on a Saturday night into a Give Sunday. Give my hour back. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know who really hates it? You know who hates daylight saving time more than anyone else on the planet? Cause it's always Saturday night into a Sunday. A new mother. Well, that. <laughs> yes, they do. Priests, pastors, anyone who's at church, because the next, that morning, the next morning, half the people show up an hour early, half the people show up an hour late, because no one has any idea what time you're supposed to. You can't book an event. You cannot stage an event on the Sunday of a daylight saving time and expect you're going to have a really proper turnout. really scratched a wound here. <laughs> Honestly, could you imagine if you had, if you were holding an event, if Brad Clark was promoting an event, you would never put it the morning of daylight saving time because you know that nobody would get there on time. Nobody has a clue. It's usually, and then you know what the worst one is? Do you have a clock? You have a clock in your car. Do you know how to set the clock in your car? Yes, I do. Don't you? No. <laughs> well, Not you well. are technologically incompetent. I, I'm good at computers. I'm good at all kinds of stuff. The one in my car, as soon as you start to press the button, because it doesn't go right away, you have to press it and hold it, and then it starts going. Boom, boom, boom. But then when you've held it for about five seconds, it goes boom, 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 and goes past. And I got to go all the way around. How's it go again? I didn't hear that. We're going to go to news break. Back for another hour after this on Daylight Savings Weekend here on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There were reports... Well, we know what happened with Donald Trump earlier this week with the tariffs, and then they were going to have tariffs on steel. They weren't going to, and then it decided they weren't. And there were reports that Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau's phone call with him may have had a an influence on changing his mind about the Canadian side of things. Keep that in mind for one second, because if you are a conservative, probably you don't love to give Justin Trudeau credit for anything. So if this in fact happened, and if Justin Trudeau had some sort of positive impact, positive influence on deterring Trump from bringing in tariffs to Canada, keep that in mind for a second, because I'm now going to flip to the other side of the political aisle. If you're a liberal, you will never want to credit Donald Trump, certainly, with anything. And yet reports are out today that Jobs in the States, 313,000 new jobs last month, record low unemployment for uh, black and Hispanic people in the States, stocks hit a record high, manufacturing has added 263,000 new jobs. My question is this, we can look, depending on which side of the political alley you're on, are we, Brad, are we at the point now, are we so dug in politically that we are unable to see anything good that someone on the other side of the political aisle has done and give them credit. Are we, have we reached a point where it doesn't matter what anyone does? If you're a conservative and Justin Trudeau does something good, there is no way in the world I'm ever going to give him credit. And if you're a liberal and Donald Trump does something that could be good, there is no way in the world I'm ever going to give him credit. Have we reached that point? Yes. If you're a partisan. But who isn't? There's no independence left anymore, are there? 
in 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 Canada in in North America. Period. I'm not sure. Canada is very unique because we have very few people that actually join political parties. So they're not registered as Republican I don't mean or registered. Democrat. I just mean they philosophically are liberal or conservative, left or right. I, I don't think Canadians really are partisan. I think there are partisans in Canada who are a part of the political game and would never give Kathleen Wynne credit for anything if you're a conservative or NDP and vice versa. And we see that at Queen's Park every single day played out, same in, in Ottawa. Uh, but I also believe, because I've experienced it, sitting down privately with many partisans, um, if the microphones aren't on and they're not in front of the, the media, then they're a little bit more diplomatic. And they may give credit. Yeah, I can agree with Kathleen on that, but most of the time I don't agree. Uh, in, this, in this case, um, I think Trump is playing Canada. I don't think Trump is, I don't think Trudeau changed Trump's mind at all. I think it was Trump's plan from the day one to say that he was going to throw out NAFTA, negotiate on NAFTA, and then come along with the tariffs. And it was all a bargaining thing. And if we don't agree uh, on dairy and agricultural things, which we really want to maintain in Canada, uh, the NAFTA gets chucked and the 25% tariff comes in. So I, 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 it's still Trump's game. Canada can't prevent him from doing anything. Okay. And, and you know what, we'll get, we, we'll probably get to that in a minute through the NAFTA stuff, but for, just for now, because I, I'm looking at this and I think when I'm with people, when I'm talking about stuff, I have enough friends who are on the left. I have some friends who are on the right. I don't see that there are people who are willing now. I just think we're so dug in that there is nothing the other side can do that will earn any kind of praise and they only can see the negative. And, I, and that to me is not healthy, but I really think we're getting, if we're not there, yeah. we're very close. We, no, we're there. Uh, I remember John Tory trying to be more nonpartisan in the House and he talked about it and he wanted to stop all the, the nonsense in the House. Uh, that lasted all of about six months. Why? And, uh, because it's just not what the House is built on. It's built on this partis- rabid partisan nature and, and it's a game of um, government versus the loyal opposition and they can't change that paradigm. But you're, of course you're right about that. I mean, you know that better than anybody. You've been there. Of course that's right. But there was a time when Bill Davis was there, when some other people were, David Peterson even as late as that, where, yes, you had partisanship, but it wasn't partisanship, as I recall, that had no room for flexibility or congratulations or acknowledgement that the other side possibly could do something good. Now it seems like there's no room to acknowledge the other side could possibly do anything good. Yeah, the only place where it does happen federally and provincially across the country is in private members' business. So when a private member brings in a bill, then you see the partisan nature rolling. Yeah, exactly. The partisan nature kind of drops off. As a parliamentarian, I can see what you're saying, and they drop the partisan banter. Um, But historically, on everything else, it's... I'm against you because you're on the other side of the aisle. Well, and so let's use Rowan's law was a law that was passed this week uh, uh, in Ontario, and it was it followed a 17 year old girl who died of a effects of a concussion in a rugby game days after she'd suffered a first concussion, and it's a new law that is designed to have players and coaches and other people in sports 
learn more and understand more about concussions to save this. Who could possibly argue against that? That's not a partisan issue. So that one, and it's a private member's bill. So that comes through and everyone goes, okay, I can do that. But it is interesting, the number of private members' bills that do not become law because the government just simply takes the position we're not going to support that, whether or not it's their own member or whether or not it's another party. Historically, private members' bills don't become law, but the debate on private members' bill is much more nonpartisan, collegial, cooperative. um, Is there a common denominator for the ones that don't? Are they more politically charged? Uh, possibly, or there could be more, um, it, it, it could be a budget issue. Well, which would it's be politically very ra- charged. It's very rare to get a private member's bill approved that has a big price tag attached to it. Um, but the debate on private member's bill, if people sat in there and listened to the debate on private member's bill and then compared it to the regular debate, it's, it's completely different. But let's go south of the border for a second, because back in 1980 or 84, I can't remember now, Ronald Reagan, which was his second term that he won? Maybe 1984? Anyway, he won 49 of the 50 states. Mm -hmm. There is not a chance in a trillion years that that could happen again, that a Republican or a Democrat could win 49 of the 50 states. Could not happen because there are already certain states that before you even cast a ballot, you know exactly which way they're going. No Republican will win California or New York ever again. And there are some states that no Democrat will ever win. Middle, you know, middle America. It just tells me how different things are now. How changed things are. In the states. Uh, I mean, it's... And now, I, I mean, we, while well, we're seeing it in Ontario with the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario also, it's very tribal now. There's factions within factions. So if you look at the Republican Party, there was the Tea Party. That was a faction within the party. But you've got the fiscal hawks. You've got the military hawks all in the party. And they can't agree on anything in their own party. How are you going to expect them to work across the aisle? So how has that happened that we have not just party to party, but even as you say, within people to people, how have we got to the point where we are so intransigible, whatever. Intransient. Yeah. We won't move. We are, we, we believe this and see, cause at one time, again, that kind of position was held by issues of morality or ethics. I, I morally believe this and that's a moral position, which I believe is something I'm not willing to change. And I think most people at that time understood that. That is something you deeply hold as true to your faith or to your philosophy, and it would be wrong for you to change. But we have expanded that now to include a lot of stuff that normally we would have been able to deal with in the past that is now unable to be moved. Well, it's uh, <laughs> I can't even recall if there's ever been a shared bill in um, Queen's Park where it's... Uh, uh, it would have been back in, in when I was in, in at Queen's Park, uh, last time I recall a couple of MPPs saying, okay, we, we'll work on this together uh, with a private bill. MPPs um, of the same party or different parties? Different parties. Oh, different parties. Yeah. That's what I thought you meant. Yeah. 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 But but in the States, I mean, it's quite common to have a bipartisan bill or an attempt at a bipartisan bill. But it's interesting in the last eight years with Obama, and now we're a couple years in with, with Trump here. They they can't get their houses to work together. There's been an impasse that they have not been able to overcome, and it is the the virulent form of of rabid partisanship 
But is that the politicians that driving that? Or yes. is that them recognizing that their constituents are rabidly against the other side? And if I want to get reelected, I better take their position. Because I think it comes from the grassroots. I think the people on the ground are the ones who are as divided as ever. And the politicians know that's what they have to support. I'd never really thought of it that way. It is quite possible that it is a grassroots partisan fever that now, if I'm elected as a senator, I have to represent that 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 that's who got me partisan in. group. Uh, it, I I loathe the fact that there's no leadership in politics where they're willing to say, "Okay, I understand the partisan nature, and I understand that you know historically we would be opposed to well gun control, for example, Republicans would be opposed to the gun control." Um, but to rise above that and say, for the benefit of the overall country, we have to do something more. But we're not seeing that. Well, it's I, very tribal. Another example uh, that just came up yesterday, I guess it was, when we got this news late yesterday that Kim Jong un says that he is willing to sit down or wants to sit down with Donald Trump to have a. Yes, no Democrat is ever going to say, way to go, Donald, that's fantastic. And that's what I'm talking about. And this is not about cheering for Donald Trump or cheering for Justin Trudeau or cheering for Hillary Clinton or whomever. But that to me seems like one of those moments when you go, wait a second, if this is real, if if this is not some sort of trap that Kim Jong-un is trying to set, and if he's legitimate, and you've got a president who has been able to get a guy to sit down and have these talks and maybe disarm, that seems to me to be a positive thing. You can still not like Donald Trump. But but it's interesting because Republicans and Democrats were both um, lambasting Trump for his aggressive stance with North Korea, you know, threatening him and all the things that he, but if it works, if if it gets him to the table, well, how are you going to criticize him now? But because up until now, no one has ever threatened Kim Jong-il with anything from the United States. They really have been very careful. They treated him with kit gloves. And this is where I think it's going to be very interesting. This, this, this as one example, this is mm-hmm. one example and many others. And again, I, I, I'm not pointing from left to right or right to left. It is equal on both sides. It is Obamacare. Obama. It is impossible. Yeah, it, for sure. It is impossible. It seems to me for people to accept or acknowledge that the other side is capable of doing something. But you that have is good. to change the paradigm from the beginning. I remember when I brought in Brian's law, Bill sixty eight. Explain uh, what that was. Brian's again. law was a mental health act uh, amendment that enabled us to protect people who had serious mental illness that were a danger to themselves or a danger to others. And so we didn't go out with a bill right from the get-go and say, here's how we're going to change it as progressive conservatives. What we did is we issued a, a white paper with a whole bunch of options, and then we consulted across the province and said, we need to improve the Mental Health Act. Tell us what you think. And so we started at the high end, worked back down, heard all the comments, drafted a bill accordingly, released the bill on first reading, then went back out for consultation before it came back for second reading. And on second reading, uh, it passed um, 86, uh, what was it, 86 votes. So it was all party support in the House. Very unusual for a government bill. But we started with a different paradigm in the very begin beginning of that process. And even in the beginning, I remember Francis Lankin and Lynn McLeod being very cynical and not not sure this was actually going to work. This is a partisan trick. 
But in the end, we lived up to our word, and they all said this was a great process. And you just touched on it. There is, I believe, there is now such, and maybe I'm just a pessimist, I don't know, but it seems there is such built-in skepticism uh, or cynicism or suspicion of any. I can't let this pass because there's got to be something in this that is designed to steal political points away from us, as opposed to maybe there's something here that's actually good for everybody. And one of the downsides, and I'll say this, and hopefully some politicians are listening out there, um, political staff sometimes can create more problems on these issues than the politician themselves, because they're guiding this process on the language in the bill and everything else. And if they're rabidly partisan, they want to have their team win. And if you're working on something that is cooperative and collaborative in nature, you can't have any of that at the table. It has to be, we're doing this for Ontario. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. There was a column in the Toronto Star, and I was kind of surprised to see it in the Toronto Star, although I was thrilled to see it, because again, it goes back to what we were just talking about. I like to believe that people can have different points of view, and they don't all have to follow in a certain line. It was about populism. Now, populism is a word that in recent years has taken on negative, a negative tone, maybe beyond a negative tone. It's almost like it's a gang rising up or some fascist dictatorship thing. It's taken a negative tone. It has definitely taken a negative tone. And the, the column though, and I agreed with it, but I, I, I said, is populism not just democracy? Yes, it is. Then why does, see, and that's what I've always thought. Populism, the whole idea of democracy is everybody gets a vote and the popular opinion, which is the majority, is in power. How has populism been seen as a negative thing then? That just means that your side got more votes. Whatever the reason that they got more votes, your side got more votes, therefore you have power. Populism becomes negative only when the leader or the premier president prime minister um, has real challenges with the general public or with the elites or with the media. And I mean, look at Trump, a perfect example. I mean, course, he, he, he was elected as a populist um, and now it's become negative to be a populist. Um, but you can't be elected without, the, without every, being every a Every politician has to be a populist in some way Was or Obama another. not a populist? 100%. He won because of that. I mean, let's be realistic. It was a landslide and it was pure populism and it was all about hope. It was about dramatic change in government and we're, and, and it may not have said drain the swamp, but if you go back and listen carefully to what Obama was talking about, it was about hope. It was about, we can do this together. And he, he, he sold that concept that we're all in this together to the American people and, and, and they bought it. So why is populism then, why has that word taken on such a negative tone? And it's clear it has, I mean, with the, with Donald Trump, clearly populism is now seen as something spiteful or negative. Because there are some, um, sectors of politics or, or it's almost tribal again, I, I keep talking about tribal groups within, in the Republican party whose populism was to the far right. And very, and very much upset people. So the alt-right really, truly has upset people in the United States to the point where media in Canada are also talking about how bad alt-right is and that that's populism. But that's not, po- that, that's one particular political group 
Did Obama not have uh, groups on the far left that supported Absolutely. him? Absolutely. But most conservatives would say, wow, all the media is left anyways. Well, I, I'm not going to argue that, but what I am going to say is, again, what makes me confused about this whole thing, because when I, and I, you know, maybe I'm just not the brightest guy in the world, and I acknowledge that, but when I hear populism is bad, and the Donald Trump or whoever else, and we hear this with other people, not just him, but he's a fascist, and I'm like, wait, you do understand that fascism or dictatorship, or whatever, is the opposite of, of populism. Correct. A dictatorship is you have stolen power despite the wishes of the people, Whereas populism is you are the leader because of the wishes of the people. When I was elected uh, for the first time in 1999. Were you populist? I was populist. And the media portrayed me as such. I was able to ride, as they said, that fine line down the middle of, of representing the constituents and not annoying the premier to the point where he says, okay, you're out of caucus. And so I was considered to be a populist. But it was a positive thing that was said about me back then. Today, when you read about populists or you read that they're calling a politician an opportunist, well, I got news for you. They're all populists. They're all opportunists. If you're going to run an office, there's an opportunity that presents itself and you're going to seize that opportunity. And that would I don't be, see them as negative, Scott. But that's clearly the interpretation now. If you yes, see someone as yep. a populist leader, mm-hmm. that the intention of that word is now Somehow you are frightening, somehow you are evil, somehow you are to be feared. Okay, so is Justin Trudeau a populist? Yes, he won very much on a populist message, sunny ways, and, and, and he is riding that message. Um, but in the next election, you're going to have uh, a conservative pointing out all of the crazy spending and all the things that have gone wrong, and you'll have people accuse those conservatives of being populists. But they're both populists. They're both running to gain as many people's votes as they can within the community, and that is politics. I don't see populism as a negative. If it becomes a fascist state, then we got a problem. But that's, again, that's the opposite of populism. Correct. We don't have dictators. Yes, he has executive powers. Yes, it's, I mean, the prime minister and see, the premier have a lot of power. Um, my concern, become, I become scared of a leader when they're not a populist. Because when they're not a populist and they're still in power, that means that they have, and I'm not talking about at the end of a term, I'm saying if you were refusing to leave office, if you mount the military to... Let's look at the next municipal election coming up. You're going to have candidates come forward and say there's insufficient civic engagement. Which there is. Which, you know, there's um, a lack of dialogue and collaboration with the citizens. I'm talking about the engagement being 22% voting or whatever it was last time. But but they're going to point all of these things out and that becomes a part of a populist campaign. They're trying to motivate people to say we need to change how City Hall works. Is that a negative thing? No, it's politics. They're pointing out what they believe to be the weaknesses in the, in the, in the system. Same as provincially and, and federally. And they're all populist. <laughs> they, have, they can't win. So let me go back to my point then, is that where did the idea come from or when did the idea start that somehow populism equaled bad or equaled scary or equaled angry citizens rising up with pitchforks and torches? Because that's the image that is portrayed with populism. Yeah, but it's, I, I, I may be mistaken, but it's um, when the majority will of the populist group 
takes advantage of the minority, then populism becomes the negative in political science. So if they're ignoring the rights or if they're oppressing the rights of minority people, whatever the minority is, um, and it's a part of that populist idea, then this becomes a negative situation. Are you talking minority as minority groups or the minority party? Minority party, minority groups, it could be any number of but is that not, anarchists who are considering themselves a minority. But is that not then every single party that's ever been in power because the things they are going to put in place go in the face of the people who lost, who wanted something different? And so, I mean, it's a but loose if you're, definition. If you're, if you're in the losing end, uh, if you're the NDP, you're going to accuse trust Justin Trudeau of being a populist. Right. And does Justin Trudeau have anything to apologize for being a populist? No. I don't think so. And if Andrew Scheer wins next time I don't on a populist ha- movement, he has nothing to apologize for. But there will be people who will be disenfranchised. There will be people saying, well, I didn't vote for him and he's not representing me. But it goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, is that everybody who doesn't win is disenfranchised and angry with the other side. We now hate the other side. And so it, every person... I mean. Uh, it's so complicated, isn't it? Well, I, there was a time, there must have been a time way before I was born that all politicians just sat around and sipped sherry and got along. <laughs> I don't know. Smoked cigars. I think they're and, still sipping the sherry. <laughs> <laughs> might not be sherry And they anymore. might be expanding at the waist more. I don't, I don't know. I'm being very cynical here, but um, the, it's different than it was when I was a child. I, I, I will admit that. I, I recall my parents speaking with... Um, much more positive respect and civility about their political leaders than we do today. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, even if you, yeah, no, I mean, even if you disagree with the person, you at least, and maybe it was Richard Nixon, I don't know, maybe it was in Canada, maybe it was Pierre Trudeau, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when it shifted, but it did most definitely shift. clearly a point when you were able to now speak in non-respectful tones about the political leaders. At one point, even if you disagreed vehemently, they were still Mr. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. Absolutely. But look at the town halls that are happening now. You have people yelling and screaming from the background because they can't get their message out. They're angry because they're not being heard. They don't see that this is real civic engagement. They, 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 they have a problem with this process. Um, but it doesn't change. They just continue doing the town halls and ignore those who are screaming and just try to get their message out the best they can. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.